ಕಣಕಾಬಧಾಕ್ಷಂಬರೋಧಾರ್ಮಪಾಲೋ ವಂದೇ ಜಗತ್ಪ್ರಿಯಕರುಣಾಭೂತಾರೋಷ್ಣಾರ್ಜುನ So this morning we're discussing chapter 4 from Bhagavad Gita. In chapter 3, Krishna emphasized Nishkam Karma Yoga to Arjun, informing Arjun that he didn't have the adhikar or eligibility for gyan to sit in contemplative life. So he encouraged him to work with the spirit of renouncing the fruits of his work and that by such his heart would become purified so in this chapter krishna speaks of gyan yoga and thus he speaks of the fruit of nishkam karma yoga and although he stressed the uh, nishkam karma yoga in the previous chapter over gyan its superiority was a relative superiority relative to the eligibility of arjuna as i said when a person acts in accordance with their adhikar or eligibility then that calls real progress and that is the best path the best course to take but at the same time the fruit of nishkam karma yoga in the form of self knowledge is from an absolute perspective superior to nishkam karma yoga when the heart is purified by nishkam karma yoga subsequent knowledge that manifests its fruit that's superior to nishkam karma yoga and as it does one becomes qualified for contemplative life and that self knowledge of course is a doorway in a sense to bhakti although as we'll learn from bhagavad gita whenever faith in bhakti awakens in the heart one can take immediately to bhakti although bhakti itself is of liberated nature so therefore the self knowledge and knowledge of brahman this is concomitant to bhakti proper while krishna emphasizes the fruit of nishkam karma yoga in the form of gyan and gyan yoga in this chapter the virtues of knowledge are sung he also in order to further convince arjun about the value of nishkam karma yoga that he's been advocating begins the chapter by speaking of the historical legacy of this system of yoga how it came about how it came to the world through whom it was disseminated and in so doing he mentions his own involvement krishna's own involvement in that thus he opens the door for introducing the concept of the avatar this is an important part of this chapter that's in a sense tangential krishna kind of goes off on a tangent about it by the influence of arjun's confusion arising after hearing verse 1 where krishna says imam bibhaswate yogam proktavan aham avyayam bibhusran manave prahur manur 
ikshvakave bravit. Shri Bhagavan Avacha. I explained this imperishable karma yoga to Vivasran. Vivasran spoke it to Manu, and Manu in turn imparted it to Ikshvaku. So maybe you can see how Arjuna would be confused by this. His confusion appears in text 4 after Krishna speaks two more verses, but his confusion is based on this first verse. And as I said, his confusion and subsequent questioning as to how this is possible that Krishna spoke this to the sun god was a long time ago. <laughs> Opens the door for Krishna to explain the significance of the avatar, the nature of his own eternality, the eternality of his form, his omniscience. And this discussion of the avatar, although apparently tangential to the discussion at hand about the fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga, it in effect lays a little bit of a, somewhat of a foundation for chapters 7 through 12, where Krishna will speak about Tat, Tatvamasi. In the first six chapters, Krishna explaining Tvam, you, what you are, and then what is Tat in the aphorism Tatvamasi, that God is explained in the seventh through twelfth chapter and the requisite means for realizing God, bhakti. Above self-realization is God-realization. So it's a very important section about the avatar, and in the course of explaining about the avatar, Krishna introduces his swarup shakti, under the influence of which uh, the avatar descends. Avatar means avatara, from up coming down. So when divinity descends, it's under the influence of his internal energy. That is to say, his descent, his appearance, apparent birth, activities, and so forth are not under the influence of the Maya Shakti. So this will be brought out in the first few verses of this chapter. And of course, this is elaborated upon later on in the Gita. Here Krishna has said that this uh, yoga, the yoga that he's been talking about is karma yoga. It's imperishable. So how it's imperishable is that it, uh, in one sense, the knowledge of it originates in the scripture, and the scripture is imperishable. Otherwise, the way that Krishna is teaching about this Nishkam Karma Yoga is such that by adopting it, it will lead naturally to self-knowledge and bhakti. This first six chapters culminates in Krishna's glorification of bhakti as the highest yoga, which leads us into the second six chapters, which are all about bhakti. So as much as in another sense, other than it's being originating in the scripture, which is eternal, imperishable, because it leads, as Krishna's teaching it naturally to bhakti, then we can also say it's imperishable. Having spoken about this history, Krishna then says something more about the dissemination of this teaching. Evam param praptam imam raja O conqueror of the enemy, saintly kings thus obtain this knowledge through disciplic succession. At present, under the influence of extended time here on earth, this teaching has been obscured. So, overtly, Krishna is referring to the saintly kings, Rajashi, mentioned in the first verse, Vivashvan, Manu, Ikshvaku, whom he says 
having spoken to Vivaswan, he passed it down, Ikshvaku to Manu, and this way it has descended. Here he uses the word parampara. So parampara means one after another. We've written a good-sized commentary on this verse. I'll read some of it. As Krishna prepares to explain the principle of the avatar, or divine descent, he introduces another important principle, that of Guru Parampara, or disciplic succession. The two are intertwined, as are Krishna and his devotee. Krishna says that he inaugurates the divine lineage, through which knowledge of himself is then revealed by his devotees appearing within the lineage. He also says that under the influence of time, this lineage can become covered, thus requiring it to be resurrected. Krishna himself becomes involved in revitalizing the lineage during his descent, as described in text 3. Later in the Gita, Krishna identifies time with himself, described here as the influence under which the essential message of the lineage is obscured. Thus the hand of God is as much involved in establishing the lineage as it is in obscuring it. As circumstances and social considerations change over time. With this, the need to re-explain the spirit of the lineage relevant to time and circumstance arises. That which is essential in the message must be separated from that which is relative. In delivering the principle, the details must be altered. This is the task of great souls. The mystery of the Guru Parampara is that while it suggests conformity to a lineage dating into antiquity, at the same time its spirit is that of nonconformity. Becoming a member, one conforms with the Absolute, the supreme nonconformist, who is absolutely independent. In order to be in the Guru Parampara, one must, often one must leave what appears to be the lineage, in many respects. One must distinguish between the form and substance of the tradition. Thus, we find the most prominent members of the lineage are often involved in renovation of the tradition, revealing its truth with relevance to time and circumstance, such that those who are members in form only often cannot recognize them as the current link. In order to do so, they themselves must become essence seekers anew on a deeper level and thus remain vital in their practice. Failure to do so involves a break from the tradition even though everything may appear to be in order from the point of view of the form, the shape. Once, when one of my godbrothers was speaking with Om Vishnipad Bhaktiraksak Sridev Goswami Maharaj and contesting something that he was saying I don't remember what it was, but he made the famous reply that uh, perhaps he was saying something, but our Guru Maharaj said like this, and Iskon is like this, and we have this kind of structure, and Shudamarsh replied, I am not a form maker, but a form breaker. So this is the spirit of Guru Parampara, <laughs> although in the course of breaking the form, a new shape and form may come to surround that essence, the spirit of the Guru Parampara is not form-making, but form-breaking. Even while we're drawn in by the essential message of the Absolute, we tend to gravitate towards the surface of it, towards the fringe of it, owing to our sensual orientation. We hear the message, it goes to our heart and calls us, and we, we come into it, but then we gravitate to the 
peripheral and become often attached to non-essentials. So preachers come to unsettle us so that we can refocus and catch on to the spirit, essence of the truth and be vital in our spiritual practice. And therefore the preachers are not always appreciated. As you know, I used to be quite uh, active in the distribution of Prabhupada's books. And sometimes while doing that, there would be some complaints from the public about it. And sometimes some of my godbrothers would complain to Prabhupada about the complaints that were coming from that. And Prabhupada replied that, oh, that some people are complaining, then he must be re actually preaching. <laughs> if he was not preaching, then there'd be no complaints. But if he's going to come and preach the message of Krishna consciousness, then certainly people will complain, even people who claim to be interested in the subject matter. If the preaching is vital, and then it will be unsettling. So form breaker rather than form maker. And as I say, even in the course of form breaking, another form will come to surround that, and people may hear the form breaking insights and separate themselves from a form that they became attached to only to become attached to another form and shape that's come to be the container, the holder, so to speak, of that essence. So it's very elusive, is the point. <laughs> and therefore Krishna has said here that this knowledge comes through this chain of disciplic succession, but from time to time it becomes obscured, it becomes lost. And I have made the point I think it's written here as well, that uh, more than in a particular historical time, this happened a long time ago, at this time, and Krishna intervened and spoke it to Arjuna, or it happened at the time of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. It's happening all the time that this is that we are doing this. We're gravitating towards the peripheral, towards the fringe, and losing sight of the essence. And so we need to be for our progressive spiritual life in touch with advanced devotees who can keep us on the track, keep us focused on that which is essential. In doing so, they'll give some room for us to skirt towards the peripheral, which is inevitable, with our interest in Ayurveda and uh, astrology and this thing and that thing. <laughs> this is not the central course of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. And those are overt examples. Once one of my godbrothers was staying at Chitatanasarasutmat, he was a sannyasi, he had a penchant for playing the um, sarod or esaraj. He was a musician, he would play it in his room. Maybe he would chant Hare Krishna with that. And one day, Gurmash, Srilashidamash, heard those such and such Maharaj has decided to give up playing the esaraj. And Shidamarsh commented, ah, Nartanivriti. Devotees were shocked. <laughs> giving up an artist. Very good. We should try to understand what is the heart of all this Gaudiya Vaishnavism. We're busy with so many things and we often don't take the time to chant Hare Krishna even attentively or to do so attentively. In pursuit of the spirit of the lineage, the practitioner must take note of this verse, both with regard to recognizing the work of great souls when it outwardly appears to be different in detail from previous teachers and with regard to their own practicing life. The spirit of the teaching is not obscured as much at a particular time as it is continuously for the protect practitioner who glimpses its true meaning only to lose sight of it again after being distracted by material conditioning 
under the influence of the mind and the senses. We tend to gravitate towards the outer body of the message more than to its heartbeat due to our external sensual orientation in life. The message is more than the cultural trappings it is presented in. It answers to a sense of urgency in the soul, striving for perfection. The spirit with which one initially embraces the lineage may over time become suppressed as the practitioner settles for answers to the problems of life rather than the difficult task of applying those answers in progressive spiritual life. Thus, there is an ongoing need to resurrect the spirit of the teaching both in our everyday life of spiritual practice and in terms of revitalizing its message generation after generation. So sometimes we come to a mission like this, to a tradition like Gaudiya Vaishnavism, because we want answers to life. We want to make some sense out of life, some coherence, why it is, what is its purpose, why things are the way they are, or how things are. And this is a good inquiry that arises in human consciousness. But too often what happens is we come to a tradition like Gaudiya Vaishnavism and it has answers to everything. There are a number of traditions that have answers to everything and we should respect them in the sense that whoever founded them took the time to answer all the questions. These type of meta-narratives, they can be appreciated in that sense. Otherwise, most people make it up as they go along and they want to challenge sometimes a, a tradition like this without considering that someone has taken the time to write down the whole concept. In other words, I've often met in my preaching people who challenge some aspect of the teaching and then we answer it and then they go another way and they kind of, as I say, just make it up as they go along and I reply to them, why don't you write down what you're about? Why don't you take the time to write the whole thing down and answer all the questions of life before you come with a challenging spirit to a tradition that's taken the time to do that. We should investigate it thoroughly in its entirety and consider the dignity of it and the fact that somebody or a group of people have formed a sampradaya, a whole tradition, and articulated what the view is, and in the course of doing so, given an answer, albeit you may not accept that particular answer, but they've answered all the questions of life, practically. This is no small accomplishment. In other words, these are great people. So we should approach these people, give them the dignity that they deserve in our approach to them. And of course, in a spiritual tradition like Gaudiya Vaishnavism, not only have they taken the time to articulate the whole system, but their personal lives also demand that kind of regard. So anyway, we want an answer to life. We want to make some sense out of life. We come in touch with a vital tradition like Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and it gives all the answers. But what happens, unfortunately, often then as we settle in for having the answers, which is easy to do in comparison to the real task at hand, which is to take those answers, apply them in our life, and actually come to know the answers, realize the answers. In other words, we get some relief by coming in touch with a tradition that gives all the answers. Now I know what life's about, and now I can just get on with my life as meaningless as that is, without fully applying the answers and making a solution 
to my problem. My problem is not that I, part of that problem is I don't know the answers, theoretically. But when I know the answers theoretically, my problem remains to the extent that I don't put those answers into practice and actually change my life. And incidentally, when I do that, then I come to know, in fact, the truth of life, that the answers previously given, which I thought were comprehensive, in comparison to them, they become only like a shadow of explanation. It's an explanation of something that's beyond explanation. We want a reason to life, but in a sense there is no reason because life is about love and love is beyond reason, beyond explanation. So the answers from Guru Parampara and given in the Shastra and all that, it is a kind of a framework in itself. In other words, not only is the institution we join giving a particular shape and form that holds the teaching, but the literature itself is as well. The literature is closer, perhaps, to the essential ideal than the formal mission, its corporate structure and management and organization, but it nonetheless is also a form. I have said previously that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was like a great waterfall of love of God. Like if you go to Niagara Falls, it's a huge waterfall. And all you can do is stand back in awe of that. There's no question of entering into it. You have to keep at a distance. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was such, overflowing with love of God, difficult to understand, to approach, what he was about to explain. But the Goswamis, they made a lake out of the waterfall of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's ecstasy in the form of their literature and thus made it accessible. We could approach it. But we're not meant to stay in the lake. <laughs> we're meant to become a drop of water in the waterfall itself, beyond explanation. Some explanation is there that we can approach it. So this is a form of institutionalizing that ecstasy. So in a sense, this system of dissemination, Guru Parampara, and the speaking of the members of it based on the scripture and so forth, we have to understand it for what it is. We have to take what comes from that and apply it in our life, and then we can know comprehensively. So our problem is, first, that we don't know the answers, second, that we get them, then the problem becomes that we settle just for the answers. Now I know what life's about, so I go on with my own life. What is the meaning of that? And on top of that, while going on with my own life, I just tell everybody else what the answers are and think that now I know and I've gone nowhere. And any intelligent person can see he's saying something, but he's just like me, actually. So what is the value of that? So again, we come back to what Mahaprabhu's standard of teaching was. More than by precept, by example. And actually, this is the emphasis of our Gaudiya Saraswat Guru Parampara. That's why Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur oftentimes told his disciples not to read many books. Not that he didn't want them to use their intellect, but he didn't want them to be abused by their intellect. In fact, it is mentioned in Bhaktisiddhanta Samrita by Rupa Goswami himself, one should not study too many books. We develop a tendency to want to understand this thing entirely with our intellect, we'll be repelled by the absolute because that is not the means for going there full exercise of intellect leads us to understand that it has its limitations yes we can understand Siddhanta with intellect and we should try to do that but to know our own self 
that will not be by intellect, but by heart, by bhajan. So what is the value of knowing Siddhanta? Only as much as it fuels our bhajan. And if some points in the Siddhanta are told differently by different parties and so forth, and then we become confused on that. Adam Guru may say, don't be concerned with that. Chant Hare Krishna. If we are a real follower, then we'll chant Hare Krishna. Not think, oh, he doesn't know the answer. That They say this, Jiva Goswami says this, Bhaktivinoda Thakur says that. There seems to be some difference. If I can't understand why there's a difference, then I'll reject Bhaktivinoda Thakur or I'll accept Jiva Goswami. My life will hinge on that. Actually, Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi Thakur, he wanted his devotees, his disciples, his followers to make real spiritual advancement now. And he emphasized some very basic tenets and practices. Prabhupada actually did the same thing. Now we find a big influx of persons wanting to go back and find out so much of the teachings and find that so many details may not have been given and maybe there may even be some contradiction in what appears to be the original writings of the Gosamis and some of the things that Saraswati Thakur said or even Bhaktivinoda Thakur. But they had something in mind. They had in mind what is the real spirit of parampara, vitalizing the guru parampara, making it accessible all over the world. And they wanted to create a generation of new devotees who were really interested in the essence of the teaching. And therefore, ISKCON was an amazing thing in Prabhupada's time. Prabhupada would say, and so, therefore we chant, Hare Krishna, and the whole audience would go, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And we are rising at three in the morning and going through whole morning program, japa and two hours and reading and Bhagavatam and Arati, Tulsi Puja, Bhagavat discourse, Prashad out all day preaching, Bhagavat Dharma, coming back, take Prashad, take bath, take Prashad, Arati, Bhagavad Gita, put the deity to rest, read Krishna book, drink milk, take rest, wake up. <laughs> this is uh, the kind of life he offered us, demanded of us. In other words, uh, he didn't give us time all day for sitting and studying. And that's not a bad thing, but it can be abused. And apparently they had seen enough examples of that. Therefore, Prabhupada said things like, just do this and you'll become perfect. And it's a fact, actually. All those truths that are spoken about in abstract language or through different examples trying to convey they'll become revealed in the heart by sincere spiritual practice. So our tradition, our Gaudiya Saraswat Guru Parampara is something like that. People will criticize. Rashidamar said, don't read Ujpal Nilmani, but if you don't read, how will you know? And There's some scope for reading these things, obviously, and preachers should study in order to explain the essence of these literatures and answer the doubts of others as they arise. But we should be more concerned about essential spiritual practice than anything else. Otherwise, like I say, we can get the answers and we can get more and more answers and we can just, by intellectual sleight of hand, think we've gone somewhere and be a preacher and explain to so many people and people will listen. And But actually, our life doesn't change. So you have to be intelligent people and make a balance. Obviously, I'm saying this, but I'm a well-read person in the literature. So don't take it in a, one extreme or another extreme. As I said the other day, the main books, Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, Chaitanya Charitamrita, Bhagavad Gita, Srimad Bhagavatam. If you know these books, you know everything. But it may be helpful to know these books, to read other books that are actually derived from them 
have them as their source, like that Astakalila Smarnam, Govinda Lilamrita, Krishna's Kamaras Goswami, a very high book has given the eightfold Lila of Radha and Krishna, described in poetry. It's all in Srimad Bhagavatam. Astakalila is all in Srimad Bhagavatam. In fact, Bhaktivinoda Thakur penned a book, a small book where he took verses from 10th Canto of Bhagavatam and showed the Astakalila in Srimad Bhagavatam. So everything is there. These are the main books. We should go over them again and again. And it's a fact, I admit, that no doubt the auxiliary books are there and can help us to understand what is in Srimad Bhagavatam, what is in Chaitanya Charitamrita, what is in Bhaktivinoda Sindhu, how important they are. Otherwise, we're reading through things. I read that, I read that, I know that. Give me another book. Something else to entertain my intellect with. Gain more information. So that information is only useful as it brings us back to the basic tenets, the simple message, volumes and volumes and volumes of books to give us a simple message to us. And Puri Goswami Maharaj used to say it in such a beautiful way. Bhakti promote Puri Goswami Maharaj. When sometimes he was asked some of the higher questions, he used to chuckle and say, one thing that you should know is that without chanting purely Harinam, you will never know what is Krishna Prem. Point being, no matter how much I answer your question, no matter how much uh, information you gather, it all comes down to this. Chant purely Hare Krishna. If you can't do that, you won't know what is Krishna Prem. So this is a good preaching. So as much as the Guru Parampara is about really the as much as we should understand it in an essential way as to who represents it, we should be essential in living members. When one representative passes the torch to another, this is the formality of Guru Parampara, which means from one to another. However, its essence is that in bearing the torch, the current link sheds new light. However, renovators of the tradition must be distinguished from renegades of the tradition. The scriptural canon comes to help us in this task. While renovators justify their innovations with scriptural references, renegades cannot marshal scriptural support for their deviation. Like Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, Algramaj also, they made innovations, but they were able to give some scriptural support for that. Now, maybe somebody didn't accept that scriptural interpretation. But we should know that there are different ways to interpret the scripture. That's all. Then we see if the person who's interpreted in a particular way, although you may not agree with that interpretation, he has vitality. Saraswati Thakur said, who has life, he can preach. He did so in such a big way. We can shudder in so many persons. We cannot ignore that. You may not appreciate his interpretation. We should think he's been kind enough to have the courtesy to give a scriptural reference interpreted in a particular way for those who need that. Actually, Bhaktivinoda Thakur's opinion was great persons, liberated persons, and Sridhar Maharaj was of the same opinion, naturally. They are the active agents of divinity, and scripture is the passive agent. He gave more emphasis on the sadhu, bringing the scripture down, brings it to light. What is its significance? The illustrious members of the Guru Parampara are kings of this world, having conquered their own minds and senses, as these two, mind and senses, rule everyday life on earth. In this verse, evam parampara praptam imam raja So Krishna is referring literally, as I mentioned in the beginning, to the kings, Ikshvaku, Manu, Vivashvan, 
But other than the literal reference to the kings, though anyone in Guru Parampara is a king, in that Vacho Vegam, Manasakroda Vegam, Jiva Vegam, Udura Pasta Vegam, Etan Vegam, Nyobisaheta Dhira, Sarvam, Apimam Pitivim Sasishat. Rupa Goswami has given this verse in Upadeshamrita, verse 1. If they conquered over the senses, they've conquered over the Pitivi, the world, the earth, because earth is ruled by mind and senses. Prabhupada was once asked how many disciples you have. He said, unlimited. Some know it and some do not. <laughs> in other words, who's conquered over the mind and senses is the guru for anyone who has not, in a general sense. In this verse, Krishna uses the word Rajashi to describe the prominent members of the Guru Parampara, although he's literally referring to the kings mentioned in the previous verse. Anyone representing the Guru Parampara is both a king, Raj, and seer, Rishi. Saivayam mayate yoga prokta paratana. This is the third verse now that Krishna has spoken in this chapter by way of introduction. It will be followed by Arjuna's inquiry arising from verse 1 that caused him some confusion. This is a very nice verse here, verse 3. Krishna says, I'm telling this to you, this ancient science of yoga, today, because you are my devotee and my friend. Indeed, this is a great secret. So Krishna is privileging Arjuna with this information that is the secret of great kings the sun god manu ikshvaku and krishna is saying i'm giving it to you arjuna is embarrassed to think to me you're going to give this secret knowledge of the kings as i said before the disciple should feel in the presence of his guru very unqualified yet of great potential these two contradictory things I'm so unqualified, I'm a fool, but I feel that I have great potential to do something wonderful. Because as the Guru speaks to us and instructs us and looks at us in terms of our potential, then we feel inspired. Yes, on it, based on this knowledge, I can do something wonderful if I'm listening essentially to the message. But my conditioning is also apparent because I'm only in a potential state whereas my Gurudev is in a realized state of that, actually doing something wonderful. So Arjuna is feeling like this. He's feeling very unqualified with the sense that Krishna wants him to do something wonderful also, is also felt. Krishna says, you're my friend and my devotee. Therefore, this rahasyam, this secret, I'm giving to you. In saying this, Krishna is acknowledging the qualities of Arjuna. Krishna's addressed him here in previous verses as Parantapa, destroyer of enemies. So this indicates Arjuna's power of sense control. And he says here, he implies here that the transmission of spiritual knowledge to a sense-controlled, sober disciple from the guru requires that the disciple understand the heart of the guru. Guru is trying to convey his heart, essentially what he's about. Narutam Taku prays, Sri Chaitanya Manobhishtam, Stapitam Jena Bhutale. Manobhishtam. When will I understand the heart of Rupa Goswami? What he's really about, what he wants. This is our task. The language of Guru to disciple is language of love exchanged between friends. So as I said earlier, two things. Arjuna represents the ideal disciple. He's friend of Krishna. And his friendship is tinged with dasya bhakti. So disciple is a servant, guru is the master, but in Godi Sampradaya, friendliness is also involved there. 
not complete friendliness in the sense that complete friendliness can be exchanged between two who are actually equals, but some shade of friendliness for loving dealings. And it is, after all, as I say, a discussion of the heart, so the language of love is involved. So there has to be some affection for our guru, as guru must have affection for the disciple. So we come to text four, Arjun's confusion now that I mentioned surfaces, based on his having heard Krishna's first statement regarding Krishna's position as the speaker of this great ancient science to Vivaswan. Arjun says, You took birth after Vivaswan was born. How then am I to understand that you instructed him previously? Arjuna is looking at Krishna, and Krishna is his friend, and he's there in human-like form. Humans don't instruct the demigods. But Krishna is saying, I instructed Vivaswan, he's the sun god. How can that be? <laughs> and you did it a long time ago. But you, you couldn't have done it in this body, which is just human-like. That's not possible. This way he's confused. So although the historical legacy of the doctrine that Krishna's teaching is impressive, Krishna's alleged involvement in it is bewildering Arjun. How could he have taught this art of work to the ancient sun god? If Krishna taught this to the sun god, it's a testimony to his divinity, because as I said, it's improper for humans to instruct gods, and it's not the norm for humans to remember their previous lives. So if this is the case, then obviously Arjuna is starting to think Krishna's very extraordinary, although He's appearing to me just like my friend, and now I've accepted him as my teacher, but he's human-like in appearance. So again, he's, this, this question of Arjuna is opening the door for Krishna to explain the doctrine of the avatar, the omniscience of the avatar, and the eternality of his form, the possibility of the infinite appearing within the finite and not becoming finite, although appearing finite, to the external eye. As you can see, very important doctrine, very relative to bhakti. What Krishna has said about instructing the sun god previously is humanly impossible. The question here is that if Krishna taught the sun god in another body, he could not remember it in his present body, human body. Neither could Krishna have taught the sun god in his present body at the dawn of creation due to its apparent human and temporal nature. Thus the teaching of the Gita as to the omniscient and eternal nature of Krishna's human-like form is introduced by Arjuna's question. In verse 5, Krishna explains his omniscience, and in verse 6, his eternality. Krishna answers, Sri Bhagavan Vacha, Bahuni me vetitani janmani tabarjuna, taneyam vedasarvani natvam vetaparantapa. The Lord of Sri said, Arjun, both of us have passed through many births. I know all of them, whereas you, subduer of enemies, do not. So here Krishna is speaking about his omniscience. The omniscience and eternality of the Lord's form and appearance, nature, will be described. Madhusudan Saraswati makes a nice point here with regard to the addresses that Krishna uses in speaking to Arjun. He calls him Arjun and Parantapa. Here, other than what Madhusudan Saraswati says, the name Arjun indicates that just like the Arjun tree, like a tree, you know the Jamal Arjun trees of Damanarlila, trees are ignorant, unconscious. So Krishna's replying to Arjun, calling him like a tree, a dumb, ignorant person, to think that I am other than, as I say, although appearing 
in human-like form. My form is eternal. I'm omniscient. I know all of my births. You don't. I was there at that time, spoke to the sun god, I'm here now saying the same thing. All this is possible for me because of my position. And ignorant people, the implication is, they don't understand this. They're like trees. Trees are considered like tamaguna. Of course, the ignorance of Arjuna is imposed upon him by Krishna for the sake of speaking Bhagavad Gita. And he also addresses him here as Parantapa. So, although you may be ignorant, you shouldn't remain like that. You're actually in potential a conqueror of all enemies, the enemy of ignorance. So you should rise above that. Parantapa also means one who gives to others. And it's Arjuna who is giving to all of us the opportunity through his questioning for Krishna to speak on such relevant and important aspect of the doctrine of bhakti, the eternality of the form of the Supreme Lord, the omniscience of the Supreme Lord. And I mentioned this the other day. How important to us is the fact that Krishna is omniscient? Because when he's in the Brajlila, it is said his godhood is suppressed. That means his omniscience, Aishwarya is suppressed by the power of the love of his devotees. But because he remains God nonetheless, that omniscience isn't eradicated. In fact, because Krishna is God is what makes his Brajalila so wonderful. Otherwise, somebody dancing with gopis is not a big thing. <laughs> People are doing that all the time. But because he's God, because of his Aishvarya, when he acts in terms of Madhurya, human-like, sweetly, in a charming way, we are endeared by this. But my point is that he is God, although he may forget about it to some extent in terms of the Leela, and the devotees forget about it. His position doesn't change, so he has the power to hear our prayers as sadhakas, even though he's absorbed in concern whether or not Radha loves him at some point. The point is, how are we to get his attention? He's our Ishtadevata, Prajendanandan Krishna, and He's worried about whether Radha loves him or not. How are we going to get our, his attention? Vishwanath Chakravitakura has kindly explained that don't worry, he's still omniscient, although his omniscience is suppressed, whereas in Dwarka it takes precedence, and is taking the position of needing advice from Uddhava is secondary. It's reversed in the Brajlila. The omniscience takes a secondary position, but still it's there. If we are very sincere in our appeal and our sadhana, our approach, we can get his attention. It's possible. And of course, as we discussed last night, we shall try to do that through the medium of his representative to get his attention, the spiritual master in Guru Parampara. So, Parantapa, another address of Krishna, also means the one who gives to others. So, Arjuna is kindly giving Krishna the opportunity to speak this. It's said that it's not appropriate socially to speak about one's greatness unless someone asks, Oh, Maharaj, uh, what books are you writing now? Let me tell you about that. <laughs> or just to come out and start speaking about oneself is uh, <laughs> not appropriate. So Arjuna is kindly asking the question, and thus Parantapa in the sense, one who gives to others. He's giving us the chance to hear, for Krishna to say something about himself, such important things. And as I mentioned, Madhusudan Saraswati makes another comment about these two addresses. He says, by them... The twofold aspect of the illusory energy is being mentioned. Arjun and Parantapa. Arjun, in reference to Avranatmika and Parantapa Prakshepatmika.
the covering, initial covering aspect of Maya Shakti and the subsequent distorting influence of Maya Shakti. Having spoken about his omniscience, now about his eternality. Although I myself am birthless and by nature imperishable and although I am the controller of all beings, nevertheless remaining in control of my material energy, I manifest by my own internal power. So here Krishna has introduced his Swarup Shakti for the first time in Bhagavad Gita under the auspices of which the Leela's conducted relationship with devotees is based on his placing the Swarup Shakti in the heart of the Jeev. He descends under the influence of internal potency remaining in control of the external energy at the same time. Again, this Swarup Shakti, which is different from the Jeev Shakti and different from the Maya Shakti in the sense that it's said to be non-different from him. They're all one and different, but the Swarup Shakti is his own nature. Maya Shakti is a Bina Prakriti Rashtada. It is a separated energy. Jeev Shakti is marginal. It can function in relation to the material energy and thus thereby be separated from the Lord. But Swarup Shakti can never be separated. Like you cannot separate the moon from its shine. That Swarup Shakti is what reveals Bhagwan, this feature of the Lord. So later again, this is mentioned in the ninth chapter, Mahatmanastumam Partha Daivim Prakriti Mashrita. The devotees are also moving under this. Daivim Prakritim, internal energy of the Lord. Surup Shakti, Jiv Shakti, Maya Shakti. These three principal Shaktis of the Lord we should understand properly. This verse can also read differently than we've rendered it. Being situated at Ishtaya, in my own form, Prakritim Swam, in this rendering, Prakriti refers not to Krishna's material energy, rather to his own identity or nature. Siddhar Swami says, resorting to my own Prakriti, which is made of Sudasattva, Ramanuja concurs, as does Jiva Gosami in Krishna Sandarbha. In either case, the purport is the same. Krishna's form and descent are not tinged with material qualities, for he descends under the influence of his primal Shakti. Madhusudan Saraswati offers a different purport in conformance with the Dvaita Vedanta. At the same time, he acknowledges, in doing so, quote, Others, however, do not admit that there is a relationship of body and possessor of the body in the case of the Supreme Lord, but that he is Vasudev, eternal, omnipresent, existence, knowledge, bliss, through and through, full, unconditioned, and the Supreme Self. He is himself that body, and it is not anything material or made of maya. So in this way, showing regard for the Vaisnava interpretation, he mentions it, does not try to refute it. Madhusudan Saraswati, of course, was a, a Dwaitan, but he came from Bengal, and he was very influenced by Gaudiya Vaishnavism. He never met Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Of course, if he had met Mahaprabhu, he would have been converted. So without reading the balance of this lengthy commentary, suffice to say that here Krishna has explained the eternality of his form and nature, as he has in the previous verse, his omniscience, by the grace of Arjun's questioning, created by his own statement, which is understandably a little confusing. I think we should stop there. Any question?
All right, let's stop there. Srimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai.